We are back with another very special episode of the Brando cast. And let me say this, people. I've been chasing this dude down. We have had some technical issues because the man does not want us to get together to talk about stuff. The guy I'm talking to today is, I would say, the greatest frontman in the history of punk rock. More importantly, he's the most significant human being to come out of Hermosa Beach, California. He's a founding member of Black Flag. He's a founding member of the Circle Jerks. He's a founding member of Off. There's no one in LA like the gentleman I'm talking to today. And if you've been to Friends 62, you've seen him before. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking to the legendary Keith Morris. Hello, sir. And at Fred 62, you'll see me sitting uh, at the table right next to the door for a quick getaway. <laughs> Dine and dash. Dine and dash. No, I, I happen to know the, the owners, so it's like I, I can go in there and occasionally I'll get a free meal. So I, I at one point in time, before the, the, before the virus, before we were told stay home, I, I would be in there probably a minimum two or three mornings out of the week to have the huevos rancheros and one morning i had a gentleman walk all the way across the room and stick out his hand he said my name's dave and i'm like you don't need to introduce yourself you're one of my favorite guitar players dave davis from one of the brothers from the kings now the guy wrote death of a clown so you know he's obviously he's up there on a pedestal that a lot of a lot of people will never ever you know you can play for a million years and still not come close to you really got me you know and all day all day and all night you know the original punk band if you will uh, and those brothers fought like there was some kind of a feud between them from start to finish well, I read that there was a possibility. I mean, coronavirus has blown up everything, but I read that there was a possibility that they were going to do something this summer together, Ray and Dave, that they were going to try to like, you know, let bygones be bygones and finally do some sort of performance, even if it was a one-off thing in London. But, you know, that's something that we've been denied. So let me ask before I forget, as we approach the 40th anniversary of the seminal punk record Group Sex, which came out on October 1st, 1980, were there plans for the Circle Jerks in the summer of 2020? We had 70 shows canceled. 70, 70. And here, can you hear the garbage truck? Yes, I can. It, well, it, it, it's, it, I, it's, I think garbage you're in a garbage day in East Hollywood, Los Feliz. Where are you? Somewhere over in that part of the world? I'm right, I'm right behind the Vista Theater. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, it's just adding a little flavor to the podcast. Okay, so, so you- today's also, um, grass cutting leaf blowing day. <laughs> you know, um, one of the great things about, one of the great things about the protest up in Portland, when the when the the moms and the women stood in front of everybody, when, when they started firing the uh, tear gas, there was a there, one of the dads showed up with the leaf blower, which a trick that they learned from the protesters in Hong Kong to blow back the tear gas. Well, somebody was saying, 
you know, there there were there there people in some parts of the world where they play a lot of ice hockey, you know, in a lot of the cold countries and they're, and they're protesting and all of a sudden they're throwing these canisters or shooting the canisters or however, however they're being um, used. And that like a guy with a hockey stick hits it like a hockey puck and it hits it right back to where it came from. <laughs> well, I know that I know yeah, that I thought that was brilliant. Well, I know that, that back. Was, I know that back in the day, especially in the South Bay, you had to put up with your share of, of cops breaking up shows. Correct. Um. Well, it, it went back even earlier than that because we liked to uh, being kids in high school and junior high. We wanted to party on Friday and Saturday night. You know, so one of the kids' parents would be gone, and now all of a sudden there's sixty to hundred people at this house when that. Uh, big hand hit the 12 and the little hand was on the 10 it's curfew go oh. home oh at 10 o'clock or go to jail yes 10 p.m was our curfew the party's over get so out of here then 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 the was there a hermosa beach police force is that who would show up to break up parties it was, it, not only did it happen in hermosa beach but it happened in redondo beach and manhattan beach it, it it was basically it was uh, a very common occurrence. So you like, have let's mess with the kids. So you have felt a, a police. Have you ever felt a police baton on your shoulder or your head? Yes, I wow. have. Wow. Um, I had a situation um, over at the New Mask, over on the corner of Vine and Santa Monica Boulevard where I did something in the parking lot that was totally, totally uncalled for. And because of that, I was put in the chokehold. And when I came to, I was, uh, uh, I'd already been cuffed, and I was kind of pushed against a car in the parking lot. I was crouched down with my hands behind my back, and... The, uh, the, I guess the officer who was in charge, it was some kind of a drill that they were conducting where all of the, um, there was one black and white parked in the middle of the lot and all the rest of the police cars were unmarked and there were two guys in each car. And when I got dragged across the dirt lot face, face down, I mean, I, I, what I did, I deserved to to get treated the way that I got treated, except for the chokehold. You know, why would they choke out a guy that weighs 115 pounds? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. But obviously, this was at the time when uh, Chief Daryl Gates was allowing um, all of his force to use that kind of force, the chokehold. Right. So I, I come to, and all of a sudden, I've got a line of about 30 cops. And apparently the uh, the word that went down from the guy in charge was, do whatever you want. You have one, you have one shot. Take your shot. And so I, uh, I got kicked in the nuts. Um, I had both of my knees because I was able to, like, use my knees to, like, ward off some of these blows um so both of my knees were completely bruised from being being kicked being punched and being 
um, hit with the baton. Wow. It was it was not fun. Well, they hated you guys. I, I learned my lesson. Yes, this was this was uh, um, this was early on in Black Flag. Yes. Yeah, and they hated you. I mean, and what do you think? You know, they I know the answer to this, but what do you think they hated the most? What do you think drove the LAPD and all those other police forces so crazy about the the early punk scene in LA? What what drove them crazy? Was it just control, or was it just a new group of people that they looked at as hippies to to beat? I mean, what 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 drove them so mad about about you guys? You know, I couldn't really uh, answer that, but you would think, and this goes back to the riot on the Sunset Strip, that we're the authorities. And we know where all of the kids are. So let's let them congregate where they're congregating because we know that they're not all spread out all over Southern California. There's a big bunch of kids gathered here on Sunset Boulevard, the Sunset Strip. We'll just we'll, we'll keep an eye on them. You know, we won't let it get too out of hand. But um, apparently... You know, at that time, like I said, we had Chief Daryl Gates, and he was just a he. He was the he was a pig. Yeah, it was like my way or nobody else's way. That's the only way. You know, they had the uh, what was the battering ram, which basically was a, a, an army tank painted flat black with the. You know, they put some kind of like what you would see on a tractor on the front of the the tank. Right, you know, and they were just—they were just smashing buildings, and like there was one story where they actually smashed in the front of the house while the family was sitting there on the couch in the living room watching television. Right. Oops. Wow. Oops. Wrong address. You know, so there was there was a lot of stuff like that, but um. You know, it, 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 it goes all the way back to the very beginning of, like, youth versus authority. Yeah. You know, stop making that noise. <laughs> well, you listen. You, you have your noise that you listen to. <laughs> well, and Daryl Gates was the, the classic authoritarian. I mean, God damn it. If there's ever been a police chief who tried to run his own police department like a, like a military unit that was about to head off to Iraq, I mean, it was Daryl Gates. I mean, my God, that guy's responsible for so much violence that happened in the city of, of Los Angeles, not just against you guys but uh, every every community of color in southern california you know felt the uh, the end of his stick i mean it was a really insane period of time but i was i was saying to dh peligro the other day that time seems a little bit quaint compared to what we're watching now happening you know, uh, on the corner of Beverly and Fairfax after that big uh, Black Lives Matter march went down. I mean, that must have, if you saw any of those images, I'm sure that took you, you know, way back to your own roots. I mean, it's just crazy to see again. And and the um, really sad thing is that the majority of the people that are protesting, they know that it's got to be a peaceful protest. Yeah. There, there, there can't be any... Um, us getting out of line because they will draw guns and they they aren't afraid to use their guns right so consequently um now we have uh the uh dhs uh, the department of homeland security sending in basically 
members of uh, the Border Patrol. And what they're doing is they're dressing up like they're military. That's crazy. And I, I just I just read a report from um, one of the uh, one of the guys, one of the big shots in the army, because they're wearing army gear, saying that is not us. We would never do that. We're not here to fire on our own citizens. So that's a good thing to know, because we're getting ready, hopefully, to have a, a an election where. The, the guy who's there right now is going to get his ass handed to him. And he's already talking about, well, I'm not going to go peacefully. I'm not going to I'm not going to align myself with the election results because there'll be all of this cheating going on. Yeah. And uh, I read that Biden's already said there are ways to remove somebody that doesn't want to be removed from where they're at. And I really, I like that. Yeah. You know, because we, 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 we saw what, what they did at the White House when they started, you know, clearing that path for um, for him to walk over to the, the church that he never attended. And he waved the book that he's never read. Upside and- down. Upside down. <laughs> Somebody should have just walked up to him and grabbed it out of his hand and hit him upside the head. <laughs> yeah, well, here's some re- here's some here's some Jesus for you. <laughs> oh my God! Well, you know it's um, it, these are crazy times, and I have to say to you that um, just taking a little bit of time uh, of a timeout from the madness to do something as silly and frivolous as this little podcast helps to keep me sane so i'm i'm eternally grateful that you're you're playing the game of the brando cast with me today so on that note mr morris what i'm going to do is i'm going to switch gears a little bit and we can go back to talking about all this stuff and i hope we do but what i what i'm going to do is i'm going to i'm going to basically share the history of Mr. Alice Cooper with you. I asked Keith uh, about some of the influences he had as a young dude, and he threw out the name Alice Cooper. So, cats and kittens, let me say that Alice Cooper, born Vincent Damon Fernier, is an American singer-songwriter and actor whose career spans over 50 years. With a stage show that features guillotines, electric chairs, and reptiles, Alice Cooper is considered to be the godfather of shock rock. He is also credited with helping to shape the sound and look of heavy metal and has been described as the artist who first introduced horror imagery to rock and roll. Alice Cooper was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year of our Lord, 2011. All right, so Keith, just tell me, you're a young dude growing up in Hermosa Beach, California. Where does Alice Cooper come into your life? Well, um, I worked down on Pier Avenue. I, I worked with my dad in, in a store that my dad owned on Pier Avenue. <laughs> what was and that store? That was called the Hermosa Tackle Box, 21 <laughs> Pier Avenue. Yes. At, uh, I would say at about 48 Pier Avenue was a record store called Rock and Gravel. Wow. And I would uh, take breaks from work. And I would walk two doors east and make a left and be in a space with 
rock records on the wall. You know, they're displaying all these records. And I'm looking around. Uh, this, this would be at a time when uh, you would look at an album cover and you would go, I'm buying that just for the album cover. Yep. I don't even know anything about the music. I'm just buying that. Right. And I'm looking, I'm looking at Love It to Death, and I'm looking at these five guys who look like circus freaks, transvestites, just the, just the goofiest looking like that's some stuff I've never seen. I want to listen to this. And of course I was taken aback. My three favorite Alice Cooper songs are on love it to death. Mm -hmm. Caught in a dream (laughs) ballad of Dwight Fry. And, uh, we still got a long way to go. Yeah. Those are my three favorite out. Al- but here's the thing, the, because I, I got into a conversation with one of my friends and he said, have you heard any new music that would knock off any of the first bands that you ever heard? You know, you have a you have a uh, you have a place and you, you have this love of all of these bands. And have you heard any new music that that would knock Black Sabbath off their perch? Have you heard any new bands that would knock um, Roxy Music off their perch? Wow. Have you heard any new bands that, that would knock the Alice Cooper band? You know, and the list goes on. Deep Purple, you know, uh, television, just all sorts of bands. And yes, there are new modern bands that are great, but they don't have the same kind of impact as when you're young and you're smoking pot and you're partying with your friends and you're discovering that you're growing hair on your testicles <laughs> and all of that stuff. You know, you're you're discovering about driving and partying and uh, hanging out with girls and doing whatever you're doing. It's like all of that music, like the first album you ever owned. Well, it, it, for me, will always be the greatest album that I've ever owned. And yeah. that's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That's the Beatles. Okay, so let, but, let, me, let me ask that. that, that, that or, uh, as a young dude, that, what, were the Beatles sort of your first band that you locked your teeth into and said, I want to learn everything about this band? Well, um, I would, uh, my sister and I would get in the car with my mom, and the first thing she would do is turn on the radio and normally what probably the the first song coming out of the radio would either be the beatles or the rolling stones right you know so we we love these bands yeah and they're you know there's the there's the constant competition who's better the beatles or the rolling stones and it's like no today when we get through I, i might listen to some rolling stones tomorrow i'll listen to the beatles you know, Saturday it'll be somebody else. Were you guys were you guys listening to KHJ radio in uh, Los Angeles at that time? Was that still a relevant station when you were young? We were listening to AM radio, mm-hmm. so that okay. meant we had two stations that we were listening to. We were listening to KHJ, yeah, which was the uh, friendlier. You know, you would hear the Supremes. And you would hear the Mamas and the Papas. And then we would listen to KRLA for the stuff that had more of an edge attached to it, like the Seeds or um, 
Well, the doors got played on both stations because at that particular time, the doors uh, light my fire was the number one song in the universe. (laughs) So, you know, we 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 heard that over and over. But um, KHJ was friendlier. Understood. KHJ was um, KHJ would be the channel that the, the station that you would listen to. With your parents. Right. Whereas KRLA, you were going to hear the seeds and love and um, like, let's let's spend the night together, Rolling Stones. You weren't going to hear that on KHJ <laughs> just because of the sexual connotation. Totally so, understood. Totally understood. We listened to both. And it was what was great was that they weren't that far apart on the on the dial. Well, I was really floored by the movie uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of their use, uh, their use of KHJ. It's constantly playing throughout the mu- uh, the movie in the background. Anytime someone gets in the car, uh, they turn on KHJ and you hear the real Don Steele or Robert W. Morgan. And so since that movie has come out, I've been sort of immersing myself in, in their playlists from the 60s because of the internet. You can go back and, and you can you can listen to full shows that were recorded in 1966 and 1967, and uh, I'm getting a, a real kick out of that. Let's bring it back to uh, Mr. Alice Cooper. Formed in Phoenix, Arizona in 1964 by a group of high school buddies, Alice Cooper was originally the band's name. By 1967, the band had begun to make regular trips to L.A. to play shows. Bernier believed that the group needed a gimmick to succeed, and he began to dress up like a serial killer with tattered women's clothing. One night after a bad gig at the Cheetah Club in Venice, the band was approached by music manager Shep Gordon, who saw potential in the band. Gordon arranged for an audition with Frank Zappa, who was looking to sign acts for his label. Zappa told them to come to his house at 7 o'clock, and they mistakenly assumed Zappa meant 7 a.m. Being woken up by a band willing to play psychedelic rock at 7 o'clock in the morning impressed Zappa enough for him to sign him to a three-album deal. Alice Cooper's first record, Pretties for You, was released in 1969 and it featured an experimental presentation of their songs in a psychedelic context. The artwork for this album is a painting by Edward Beardsley. That painting was originally hanging on the living room wall in the Zappa house, and Gail Zappa, Frank's wife, later claimed that that painting was stolen from them. Now, a quick tangent, Keith, before I ask you about some of that other stuff. Uh, I am uh, close with the Zappa family. I do a uh, radio show on Sirius with Amit Zappa, and I believe everything about that, uh, the possibility that someone took a, a painting from the Zappa house uh, because Gail knew where everything was. I, I, need to, I need to ask you, when you're talking about the Zappa house and the, and the painting, yes. are we talking about the Zappa house up in Laurel Canyon? A hundred percent. Yes, we are. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up something that was happening up in that canyon, and yes. that was that we, those people living up in the, in in the in the canyon, it was basically that 
They were, it was a commune. There were people coming and going. There were people come, you would, you would probably go out into your living room and there'd be a member of Crosby, Stills and Nash sitting on your couch, talking to your kids, you know, or, or Joni Mitchell would be throwing a party in her backyard. And not only would Frank Zappa and his wife be there, but you would have members of Steppenwolf and you would have Buffalo Springfield and you would have members of love. It was just people coming and going. And it was like, Hey, I'm just, I'm, that door's open. I'm going in there. I'm going to see what's in the refrigerator. You know, so <laughs> it, would, it, 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 it probably somebody just walked in and saw it and said they liked it or thought they liked it and grabbed it and took it. You know, so there, there was so much stuff going on up there. Plus, there was all of the uh, all of the uh, LSD consumption, you know, and everybody was just, you know, free love and everybody going back and forth. There was all sorts of stuff going up there in those hills. They, 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 the Wikipedia history mentions that he, they used to play at a place in Venice called the Cheetah Club. Was that a place that was uh, still relevant when you were young and starting to go to shows? Well, I um, have a friend who is posting advertisements. Um, one of one of the shows was I want to say it was um, the Turtles and Sly and the Family Stone. You know, and you'd pay like three dollars, and the show starts at eight thirty, and you know, of course, it's done by about ten thirty, so everybody can uh, beat the curfew or what have you. That was down in, was it Santa Monica down by the, was it on the Santa Monica Pier or near the Santa Monica Pier? P.O.P. Yeah. It would right. have been P.O.P. at that time. Right. Um, I was too young for that. Okay. I was like 10, 11 years old. My, nobody was going to let me go out at night to <laughs> go see the Turtles in Black Oak, Arkansas or whoever was playing down there. <laughs> What do you remember your first big rock show? My first big rock show was Steppenwolf, Three Dog Night, and the Grassroots at the uh, L.A. Forum in Inglewood. Wow! And and um, the, what what happened was it, that was for my uh, it was my fifteenth birthday, and Steppenwolf had just released Monster. <laughs> which totally applies to right now a total political american history protest song you know like where, where america where 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 are our people now because <laughs> they're beating up on our sons and daughters but anyways what happened was steppenwolf played all of their hits and then they said we're, we're gonna take a, a break we're gonna go back and have a couple of beers or what have you. We'll be back. We'll be back out in about another 10, 15 minutes, and we're going to play our our new album in its entirety. And this, of course, we didn't get to stay because, like I said, I'm 15 years old, and it's already past 10, and we're over in Inglewood, and we got to walk through Inglewood to uh, get to my grandparents' house. That's that's where we. we there were three of us. Uh, that's where we were spending the night. So uh, we didn't get to stay and see the entire Steppenwolf concert. But I'd seen bands perform live before that. I saw Love perform wow. at a movie theater down in um, down in uh, South Torrance, Rolling Hills. Yeah. And 
like a couple of weeks later at the Hermosa Fox, I would see um, the Barbarians with Malty, the, yep. the drummer that what one of his hands, he was born deformed. He was born without a hand. So he had a class, but he was the drummer and it totally worked and it was great. Those were some of the first shows that I'd ever seen. I also, uh, my aunt uh, was friends with a band called um, Smokestack Lightning who were on the same label as, I want to say, they were on the same label as Steppenwolf and Three Dog Night. They were on the same label as all of the bands that I saw at the forum. But they were terrible. I mean, there was no PA. They were playing in her backyard. And, you know, at that time, there, there are no monitors. I mean, maybe if you're playing in a big, big arena, they had monitors. And I'm sure they had monitors at the Whiskey A Go-Go. But... You know who who could afford to you know bring along monitors <laughs> to play to play in a backyard you know where now, everybody's dosed on acid. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you are one of the great frontmen in rock. You when you perform, you give it your all. If anyone out there is curious, just go watch. Penelope Spheris' ridiculous film, Decline of Western Civilization, and you will see the power of Keith and the Circle Jerks circa 1980. You go at 110%. Were you inspired by any of the early singers that you were watching? Were you inspired by any young frontmen, even if it was Alice Cooper or, or you know, Freddie Mercury or Robert Plant? I mean, were, were you watching singers back then? Uh, I was, I was um, not only paying attention to the, the vocalists. I call them vocalists. Some of them are really great singers. Some of them are just vocalists. Alice Cooper, is he's a great vocalist. I, I wouldn't, uh, uh, if, I were, if I was getting married, I wouldn't invite him to sing in front of a crowd without a <laughs> loud rock band. You know, because what, what happens in that scenario is you have this energy going on behind you or beside you, along with you, along with the crowd. It's like I'm I'm I don't consider myself a singer. I consider myself a vocalist. Understood. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger is a vocalist. Freddie Mercury, on the other hand, he is a singer. Yeah. You know, he can sit and pl play the piano and sing along, accompany himself, you know, hitting all of the notes that he needs to hit. Yeah. Whereas oh. some of us, we just, some of us, we just get caught up in this energy that it just, it turns into whatever it turns into. So you were uh, drawn more to those guys who had a, a, also more of a performance style? Well, one of my, one of my uh, favorite uh, singers is David Bowie. Okay, yeah. I, 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 I also love Alice Cooper, but I don't consider him a singer. I consider him a vocalist. The, the same way that I consider James Osterberg, Iggy Pop, yeah, to be a vocalist and not a singer, right? I mean, the, the, people will people will argue about this, but it's just like I never studied. I had a vocal class where I went in at eight in the morning, having worked all night long in a bar and not getting home until three thirty in the morning. And going into a vocal class, trying to like learn notes, you know, all of the different notes and trying to hit them. That was terrible. 
that was that was ridiculous and for a lot of vocalists or singers you want to be warmed up you know you 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 do whatever you're going to do during the day and you reach a certain point where you're ready to go yeah <laughs> you know you've been talking you've been getting warmed up all day long not just tossing yourself into um me 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 <laughs> you know I, I i had those classes yeah and uh i was just i wasn't down i wasn't down with it and it also happened at a time when i didn't have a lot of money and i was paying for these classes and it was just i, I didn't feel like uh, uh what was being taught was something that I was going to be able to use, that I was going to be be able to put on on the stage. Right. Understood. There's certain certain things that they teach you that don't apply to some of the things that we're doing. (laughs) This is so incredible. I just love that so much. Um, We're listening to I'm 18 in the background. Alice Cooper's shock rock reputation apparently developed almost by accident. A chicken somehow made its way onto the stage during a Toronto show in late 1969. And not having any experience around farm animals, Cooper picked it up and threw it out over the crowd, expecting the chicken to fly away. The chicken instead plummeted into the first few rows and was torn to pieces. The next day, the incident made the front page of national newspapers. Frank Zappa phoned Alice Cooper to ask if the rumor that had bitten off the chicken's head and drunk its blood on stage was true. Cooper denied the rumor, but Zappa said to him, Well, whatever you do, don't tell anyone you didn't do it. The band's second album, Easy Action, was released in June of 1970, but failed to dent the Billboard Top 200. Fed up with California, the band relocated to Pontiac, Michigan, where their bizarre stage act was much better received by crowds accustomed to the Stooges and the MC5. Finally, in the autumn of 1970, Alice Cooper teamed with producer Bob Ezrin for their third album, Love It to Death, as Keith brought up before. This was the final album in their contract with Zappa and the, and the band's last chance to create a hit. That first success came with the single, I'm 18. And as you said, Love It to Death was your favorite Alice Cooper record. Well, and it was also the first Alice Cooper album that I owned. Right. You know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, normally when you're growing up and you, you've, you're holding that in your hand and you're you're looking at the freak show on the cover <laughs> and you're listening to this music and you're going, I've never experienced anything like this. This is great. This is, I love this. I love it to death. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I um, as a, as a, um, I want to say, as a junior in high school, one of the girls in my class came in on Monday morning, and and we're talking, and she said, I went on a date. My boyfriend took me on a date to see this band down in Long Beach at the Long Beach uh, Auditorium, not the arena, which holds fifteen thousand people, but the auditorium, which was like a thousand people, and. The, the guy um, at one point in the show is sitting in a, an electric chair. And I'm going, 
that's Alice Cooper. And she said, yeah. And I, I, I actually really liked it. And this, this was one of the cheerleaders. She was one of the cheerleaders. And it was like, <laughs> okay, this is cool. That's good. You got, got through to somebody like that. Wow. But I, 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 I'm upset that I didn't go to that. But at the same time, I wasn't, I, I wasn't really starting to get into going to see shows before that point because yeah. I would have loved to have seen that. I, I wouldn't see Alice Cooper until um, 1972 at the Hollywood Palladium when they were out performing Killer. And what was a, another great part about that show at the Palladium was that Howlin' Wolf played right before Alice Cooper. Wow. You know, and there was a point in time when we would go to shows where you would see all of these bands play, and none of them, the only thing they had in common was, you know, they all liked to party, they all liked to drink or do whatever they did, but I I saw Leonard Skinner at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and the opening band was Rufus with Chaka Khan. It was wow. like all of these bills... See, we, we went through this thing. If you play punk rock, all the bands you play with are punk rock. So you get into this punk rock marathon, and it was like it was nothing like that in the beginning. Right. You would see, um, like I saw David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars in 1972 at the Santa Monica Civic, and the opening band was this, they were like cowboy bikers. They were called <laughs> Hellcat. <laughs> That's a legendary show, by the way. The the Spiders of Mars tour at the Santa Monica Civic Center, and you were there. That was Ziggy Stardust, yes. And now I, I will always remember that. Wow. I, I will never forget that. That I, I, I know. My, I, I had Michael. I had the great Michael Penn on this show. Uh, uh, you know, brother of Sean and, and great musician in his own right. And he was at that same show too. And he said it was mind blowing. And they tried to sneak into the show by making fake uh, Warner Brothers uh, access badges. Like they were uh, VIP executives or something. And they, he was 15 years old too. But that was such a huge show in Southern California. What was it like um, coming up to Hollywood? What was it like coming up to Hollywood back in the day from Hermosa Beach in the early 70s? <laughs> Well, one of my first uh, um, West Hollywood Sunset Strip scenarios was hitchhiking with my best friend on Pacific Coast Highway to get up to West Hollywood to see Black Oak, Arkansas at the Whiskey A Go Go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> By the way, Black Oak, Arkansas is a band that DH Peligro brought up as an early influence for him. And he said that Jim Dandy Mangrum was one of his favorite <laughs> performers. Well, we wouldn't have had David Lee Roth if we didn't have Jim <laughs> a Dandy. A hundred percent. It's so crazy. That's amazing. Give me a little picture of uh, Hermosa Beach in the early 70s. What else was going on down there? Was well, it a Hermosa sleepy beach, beach town? Yes, yes, it was. It, it was actually very pleasant. Um, most of the people were very neighborly. The, the town was very laid back. See, at one time, all it was was just a little tourist town. Uh-huh. They had the red cars here in Southern California. 
So you could you could be in the Hollywood Hills and catch the t- catch the red car, and it would drop you off on Pier Avenue, and you would walk down Pier Avenue, and you would go to the beach. One of my one of my friend's dad owned owned the Tropic Shop, which uh, he would eventually move out of, and Black Flag would move in. We would actually occupy this space on the strand right next to the beach wow. and what what he did was he rented out towels he rented out umbrellas he rented out like beach balls anything that you would expect it that you would use at the beach there, there were also lockers and showers wow so you know like a businessman could show up he'd have a locker He'd take off his business suit, put on his swim trunks, and go swimming or go just lay in the sand. So Hermosa Beach, like I said, was just this little sleepy, it's one mile square, just a really calm, casual, you would, you would think progressive. I mean, there, there were progressive minds. There was a lot of free thinkers, but uh, the city council and the mayor we're we're just complete swine. <laughs> <laughs> just just complete assholes. Right. There were some people in Hermosa Beach in the early seventies who wanted to make America great again. There were those people and there were there were hippies. Mm-hmm. There was also a lot of surfers and there were also a lot of families. You know, and the, the families just want to live their life. It's just like just just like the situation now. There are people that they, they, they don't want to be messed with. They just want to live their lives. They just want to have a good time. You know, yeah. I'll work Monday through Friday. When Friday night comes around, I'm going to have a six-pack of beer, and I'm going to watch a baseball game, and I'm going to eat a couple of hot dogs, or I'll sit at the table with my family or whatever it's going to be. And when the weekend comes, I'll mow the lawn and, you know, take out the trash and all of that stuff. People everywhere just want to live their lives. They don't want to be fucked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, and, and, and our government certainly goes out of their way to just mess up people's lives. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the really sad and tragic thing about the United States. And it's not the people that live here. It's right. the people that are in charge. Yeah. That just... It's just a long string of bullshit. <laughs> well, you mentioned um, you mentioned coming up to Hollywood to see uh, the Killer Show. So let me just bring it back, and I'm going to say that Alice Cooper's 1971 tour featured a stage show involving mock fights, gothic torture models being imposed on Cooper, and a climax in a staged execution by electric chair. The success of that tour and the success of I'm 18 led to an offer from Warner Brothers Records. The follow-up album, Killer, was released in late 1971 and continued Alice Cooper's commercial success with singles like Under My Wheels, Be My Lover, and Halo of Flies. In the summer of 1972, Alice Cooper released Schools Out. It went top 10 in the U.S. and number one in the U.K., and it remains a staple of classic rock radio to this day. Okay, so when... If I can ask, when did you start to transition from this rock, Black Oak, Arkansas, Deep Purple, Alice Cooper, 
the uh, the heavier stuff. When does the early stuff punk rock draw you in? Because you're one of the pioneers of Southern California punk rock. And where does that all start? Well, see, you can accuse me of being one of the pioneers, but we were just doing it. There was yeah. there was no conscious of us sitting down going. So we're going to do this so we can be like this. And those people over there, they'll like us. And so they'll try to be like us. And then all of this will start happening. It, it was never like that. Uh, the, the transition from me listening to the, the hard rock or the garage rock or the glam rock, uh, it, was just, it, it was just part of my musical history. Uh, I was always open-minded to... You know, listening to Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa and then listening to Uriah Heep and Trapeze and, you know, louder music. It, it, there, there was certain music that was that was geared towards like more artistic, creative, musical people. And then there was just a lot of primitive stuff that, you know, I, I, I gravitated to both. As for the, the punk rock thing, we had been we had been listening to punk rock in bits and pieces, not calling itself punk rock. Like certainly Iggy and the Stooges and the Raw Power album, Search and Destroy, it doesn't get any more punk rock than that. Right. Right. I write, you know, both of those tracks. It does just does not get any more punk rock than that it doesn't get any more hard rock than that it doesn't get any heavier than that yeah i mean it does i mean there's certain heavier <laughs> right but no but that's the template that's the template yeah yeah you know and, and we and we grew up uh here in southern california we we listened to the seeds pushing too hard Right. That's certainly a punk rock song. That's certainly take it to the man. That's certainly don't you don't you give me any of your bullshit and try to tell me what to do. <laughs> we we had love, you know. Even as as um, I want to say, nice love. Their their music contained a lot of like Spanish classical type movement in in within the music, and they still had my little red book. Like you're running around all all over town trying to bring me down or, you know, whatever the lyrics are, you know. So there were bits and pieces like that. The doors, like, break on through to the other side, you know. So is that the stuff that you guys would put when you were first getting together with your friends to just play, to just get in a room and just set up the guitars and set up someone at a drum kit? Were those the songs that you were playing? No. <laughs> we, <laughs> one of our members was a deadhead. Oh no! <laughs> and that 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 leads to debate. No. Um, I actually saw the Grateful Dead a couple of times in the very early seventies on the American Beauty and the Working Man's Dead tours. Both of those wow. tours, because those albums came out back to back. Over that course of time, I saw them twice. Wow! And I, 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 I had a great time. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a deadhead, and those are the only two Grateful Dead albums that I own. But there's some, there's some great stuff on those records. It was just like for the punk rocks. It was not cool to listen to 
like hippie music. <laughs> you know, because all they do is they just sit around and smoke pot all day and they don't get anything done. Right. And you know, that's a that's a that's a falsity. But um we we weren't listening to just punk rock. I mean we yeah, we heard the Buzzcocks and we heard Patty Smith and we heard the damned and we heard the Sex Pistols and we loved the Ramones. We loved all of this music. But we listened to other stuff. The the thing with Black Flag is that the light went on above our heads when we when Greg Ginn and I looked at each other and and, and it was almost like the, the the words that were muttered out of each of our mouths was let's start a band. Yeah. And th- this happened at the Santa Monica Civic. At a journey concert. So wow. you could never accuse us of just being uh, categorized, <laughs> no, no. and we just listened to one genre of music. No, I no think, that didn't I, happen. I, I think your fans would love to know that. Well, that might have been the Infinity Tour. Uh, <laughs> that was the height of '70s Journey, which is actually really fucking good. That was a great band. No, 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 no. This was this this was when they were first starting out. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So this yeah. is pre this is pre Steve Perry journey. When when Greg Raleigh was singing. Oh my God, that's amazing. Keyboards, you know, because one of the things that that we that we liked about Journey was that two of the guys had played with Carlos Santana. Right. Two of those guys. Neil Sean and yes, Greg Raleigh. Two, Two of those guys, they they were part of Santana, and Santana, that stuff is great. Yeah, well, that's you know, Greg, Rale- can, Greg Raleigh singing Black Greg Raleigh singing Black Magic Woman. There you go. There you have it. That's amazing. Let me read one. Let me read one final thing as we wrap up uh, some Alice Cooper stuff, and then uh, then I'll, I'll I'll let you go. Uh, we're hearing elected. In the background, Billion Dollar Babies was released worldwide in February of 1973, and it became the band's most commercially successful record, reaching number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. It featured the hit singles, Elected, Hello Hooray, and No More, Mr. Nice Guy. Attempts by politicians and pressure groups to ban Al Cooper in the U.S. only served to fuel the myth of the band, and their 1973 U.S. tour broke box office records previously set by the Rolling Stones. It also raised rock theatrics to new heights. The multi-level stage show featured mannequins, decapitated baby dolls, a dental psychosis scene complete with dancing teeth, and the highlight of the show, the guillotine. The Alice Cooper group had now reached its peak, but beneath the surface, the repetitive schedule of recording and touring had begun to take its toll on the band. Released at the end of 1973, Muscle of Love was to be the last studio album from the classic lineup. During this time, Cooper relocated back to L.A. and started appearing regularly on television shows such as the Hollywood Squares. Is there any chance that you saw Alice Cooper on the Hollywood Squares? No. <laughs> I did not. I did not. I, I didn't watch a lot of that stuff. Right. You know, television game shows. They, they had their moments, but I, I didn't. But I, I, I want to, um, I, I would like to uh, go back. We talked about AM radio in Southern California. Yes. Well, there, there was a certain stretch of time when KRLA were 
promoting concerts. I went to see Alice Cooper at the Hollywood Bowl on the School's Out tour. Okay. That was promoted in part by KRLA. Right. And that was also one of the DJs on KRLA, Wolfman Jack, was the (laughs) MC. At the Alice Cooper show? And before Alice Cooper came out, because there were there were two other bands that played JoJo Gunn and Captain Beyond, and <laughs> when, um, when he was introducing one of the bands, Wolfman Jack came out riding on the back of an elephant, and he was dressed like a he was dressed like a sultan, like you would see. Like they went out to India to the uh, date festival. You know, it was it was well, it was a I, sight to behold. A real elephant. A real elephant. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and that wow. was that was the night that the the guy flying the helicopter got busted because uh, at a certain point during the concert, the helicopter flew over the hill, the, the Hollywood Bowl and and dropped women's underwear when you bought schools out oh my god <laughs> the record came in the sleeve that was wrapped in a pair of girls underwear and it's supposed to be nothing happening in the airspace above the hollywood bowl because that's like twenty thousand people sitting there they can't have you know any jets or piper cubs or helicopters flying over there so he he got he he got fined very heavily they were giving out um high school diplomas to everybody i was there <laughs> you know uh, i would i would uh, and and that that concert was fantastic all of the bands were great i would wow. i would see alice cooper two more times i would see him on the welcome to my nightmare tour which was a complete different band. That that band was the same band that played on Lou Reed's uh, I, I forget Rock and Roll Animal album. And then, like like we were talking at the very beginning, the the last time I saw Alice Cooper was up in Montreal, and I'm looking at the band. Alice Cooper had gone through all of these different players with him. Some of them were like. The, the, the one guy looked like Rambo with a machine gun shaped guitar. Like, what, what what's up with that? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith, listen, we have been chatting for an hour now, and I don't want to waste any more of your time. You've been so uh, gracious to sit down uh, with me today and to do the Brando cast. I just want to tell everyone out there listening that if you want to read a great book, just go out and get Keith's book. My Damage, the story of a punk rock survivor. Again, Keith is, you know, just one of the great one of the great figures uh, in music. And um, you know, I, I wish to God that this uh, coronavirus can just come to a halt so you could get back out there on the road and celebrate the 40th anniversary of group sex uh, as you were meant to. Hey, Brandon, I, I have a request. Oh, go ahead. Tell me. As we're going out, like uh, closing closing music. Yeah. Could you play "Caught in a Dream" off of "Love It to Death"? I 
promise you we will play that song exactly right now as I wave goodbye to you. Thank you, Brandon. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to the Brando cast. We're growing exponentially. we got so many great shows coming down the line. So like, subscribe, tell your friends, and until the next time, cats and kittens, 